So here we go with uh, gardening tips continuing as we talk about fruit of the Spirit and what that means. And we began this last week with fruit of the Spirit and taking a look at that list of things that comes from Galatians 5. And we're working our way through that. Um, I want to give a... a little shout out today to some of the people that we know join us online every week and we don't always see here. So I, I, I had a chance this week to, to learn a little bit of gardening from Don Artema and Don and Ann join us online every week. So hello Artemis. And, and I got to see what he does with bonsai trees, right? I mean those really tiny trees that you trim around so that they stay small in a small pot. And, and to me that is just amazing because I think I could never do that, right? I could never get something to grow like that. I have enough trouble just keeping a potted plant alive, let alone sculpting one of these bonsai trees. But, but to Don, this, this kind of seems like second nature. Well, I mean, he's been doing this long enough that here's just what you do, and just by looking, he knows what, what these plants need or don't need, and can make that work. You see, the longer you get through some of these gardening habits, the more second nature they become, and, and they feel a little bit easier, and, and the, you see the results of that, how the things that you're attempting to grow and nurture there begin to thrive and work that way, but it takes some time and repetition and habit and learning along the way to get there. So I admire those who can do that well. I think there's something for us in this section that we're looking at, too, on fruit of the Spirit. There's something to say about those who've given some time and attention and developed some habits to tend for that care and who do that well, and we see that in them. So we're going to notice some of those things as we go through this. Today, particularly, we're on the spiritual fruit of joy. What it means for us to bear the spiritual fruit of of joy and what that looks like. So I'm going to read for us Isaiah 35. Isaiah chapter 35, it's written in your bulletin there. It'll also be on the screen behind us. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then, The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute's tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, in haunts where jackals once lived, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. 
They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gardening and the spiritual fruit of joy. Let's consider what that looks like in this passage in particular. If you're following along, you're trying to take notes, let me give you the roadmap of of where the next 20 minutes is going to go with us, right? We're going to look at basically three things here. First, I want to look at some features of this passage itself, right? We'll, We'll pick apart Isaiah 35 so you can see how the features of this play something out for us. So that's what we'll do first. Then I want to talk about the landscape in Isaiah 35. Because there's a landscape being described here, right? That's the second thing. And then the third thing we'll talk about, we'll get to the spiritual fruit of joy and how that plays in through this, okay? So there's your roadmap of where we're going in the next 20 minutes and how that plays out. So some features of Isaiah 35. Uh, This this is written in Isaiah as a poem. It's an example of Hebrew poetry as we get to that. And I want us to see how the poetry of this plays something out for us to notice especially because we just kind of pulled this one chapter out without reading all the rest of Isaiah. We're not going to read all that here today, but I want us to be reminded of the context that this comes from, right? Where it all fits in. So so let's note some features from Isaiah 35. The first thing I want us to note is that the, the entire chapter sort of has these bookends around it. Bookends that follow the theme of joy. That verses 1 and 2 talk about joy and rejoicing. And then way at the end in verse 10, you see it again, joy and rejoicing. Uh, let's remember this, that chapters and verses and all that kind of a thing, the original authors did not put those in, right? Translators put those in years later. So, and being that in the time when Isaiah would have lived, the, the papyrus scrolls that they wrote on, you couldn't just go down to the corner office depot and, and pick those up or order from Amazon. Those were kind of rare and hard to find. So, so when they had that, they would cram as many words on there as they could. Imagine that if the entire book of Isaiah came as no chapters, no verses, it's just word after word after word after word all crammed onto these scrolls. How do you know how this thing breaks down into sections that way? Well, I mean, we have the translators who have put chapters and verses and little headings and all of that into it. But the people who originally wrote it tucked those clues right into the writing itself. And that's what we see in this example here in Isaiah 35. Because we see that the author, Isaiah, makes a mention of joy right at the beginning, and then another mention of joy way at the end, sort of the the bookends, right? That's what tells us, that gives the signal that, all right, this is a section here by itself. And that tells us a little something more. It tells us that everything in between is framed in this theme of joy. Just because it gives a mention at the beginning and the end. But, you know, as we read all those verses in between, well, it it didn't seem to say much about joy in those middle parts. But, Because we see those bookends, we know that the theme is there. It's within that. So we've got to pull that out then, right? 
It's up to us then as the readers to recognize where is joy coming through in the poem that Isaiah writes here through this bookend that comes that way. That's the first feature I want us to notice. The second feature I'm going to have to give to you because we only read Isaiah 35. If you were to back up one chapter and read Isaiah 34, you would recognize that these two chapters, 34 and 35, are mirrors of each other. Mirrors in this way that they form something of an opposite reflection. Here's what, let me just give you the play-by-play of what we saw just in the verses that we read in Isaiah 35. Right? The, the basic storyline that we just read in Isaiah 35 is this, that there's a, de- there's a deserted, barren wasteland. Right? It's a desert where nothing can really live and thrive, but God will turn it into a garden. So this desert wasteland becomes a thriving garden. That's kind of the basic plot line that we just read in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 34 is the exact opposite of that, if you were to back up one chapter. Isaiah 34 begins with this lush, thriving garden that becomes a desolate, barren wasteland desert. The exact opposite happening here. Note that because God is doing something there. In fact, you know, especially because I'm not going to read all of Isaiah, that, that these poems that come to us in Isaiah, chapter 35 here is actually the conclusion of a section. A section that begins back in Isaiah 7. It begins in chapter 7 and it goes all the way to chapter 35. Maybe you're familiar with Isaiah 7. Maybe you've heard that one before. That's the chapter where Isaiah receives his commission from God, right? He has his vision. He's in the throne room of God. And, one of, and he says, woe is me. And one of the angels comes and touches his lips with, with a coal from the altar to purify him. And, and he hears the voice from the altar, who will go for us? Who will I send? Isaiah says, send me, I'll go. That's Isaiah 7, where he gets his commission. And immediately after that, all this prophecy starts to come. And it goes chapter after chapter after chapter all the way up through chapter 35, where we just read. And then it sort of shifts back to a narrative when you get to chapter 36. So in some way, this is the conclusion of a really long section of poetry. And if you were to read it, a lot of that poetry is about judgment, judgment to Israel, judgment to surrounding nations, It sort of goes on and on that way. But then it reaches its conclusion here in chapters 34 and 35 where you see this flipped mirror image of the garden that becomes a desolate wasteland. And then the wasteland that then becomes a garden. Let's note that feature that we're looking at. That, Yeah, we read these few verses from 35, but know where they're coming from and how that all plays itself out in this context, okay? Then, the last thing I want us to note as a feature in this are the stanzas, that it's divided into sections, because that that will help. It will help us to pull some meaning out of this, to recognize the sections in Isaiah 35. Uh, When it's flipping by on the screen, you don't see that, because it just goes slide after slide, right? And, And in fact, to get it to fit in your bulletin, we had to take the spaces out too, so it's just long there. If you're actually looking at a Bible that's flipped open, you will notice that it looks like there's almost paragraph breaks along the way in Isaiah 35. There are four sections 
in this chapter, okay? I'll break that down for you just so you can see where that is and why that's important for me to call that out, okay? Four sections, and they go in, in couplets. So it's two verses, two verses, three verses, three verses. That's the way that goes. So verses one and two, that's a section. Verses three and four, that's a section. Five, six, and seven, that's a section. Eight, nine, and ten, that's a section. That's how it breaks out. Now, here's why I'm, here's why I'm making that uh, something to pay attention to. Because the progression that takes place in this, song, in this poem that Isaiah writes, the progression that he puts here, a progression where we see that God's presence comes in this desert wilderness and makes it to this thriving garden. That he shows up in those first couple of stanzas, God shows up. It tells us what God does. And it tells us what God does in a couple of ways. It tells us what God does to the landscape itself, right? That, that the desert becomes a garden. But then it also tells us what God does for those who are there, the people there. That he gives them strength and encouragement. You see that in those first two sections verses 1 and 2, and 3 and 4, that the desert becomes alive and that the people who live there become strengthened and encouraged. That's what happens in the first two stanzas. Then it flips because what happens in the next ones in stanzas 3 and 4 talks about what occurs as a result, right? So God shows up and does something in the first part, and then there is a result that happens because of that in the second part. But this, notice this one, it goes in reverse order. Reverse order, all right. Keep following me on this. So, if in that first section it begins by saying, here's the two ways that God shows up. He shows up by turning the desert into a garden. And he shows up by giving strength and encouragement to the people there. Then, flip it. So beginning in verses 5 and 6a, it shows the result of what happens by giving strength to the people. If you're looking at it, you can see that there, right? Here's what the people are like now that God has given them strength and encouragement. And then 6b and 7, and here's what the landscape looks like now that God has turned it into a garden. Catch that? If you're looking at the verses there and following along, you can see the progression. All right? Those are features that take place that help give a little sense, you know, just some coat hooks to hang some things on so that when we read this, it just doesn't look like verse after verse after verse. But you see what's happening in these verses and how it's progressing that way, what the prophet's telling us through this. Then there's that last stanza, stanza four. Now, this one's different, right? This is verses eight, nine, and 10, where it talks about that garden, which is now a passage. You get the sense there that, all right, this, this garden that God has created in the wilderness, hang on, it's not for everybody. It's, it seems like it's only for a certain people. What's that about? How is Isaiah pulling that one through? And what does that mean? So to get into that, let's move on to the next thing. Those are features of the passage. Let's talk a little bit about landscape then, okay? 
And there's two landscapes being described in Isaiah 35. It's talking about a desert and a garden. Desert and a garden. So let's consider what that meant for the people who received this writing and, and also then, you know, pull it to what that means for us today because it applies for us too. In the day that Isaiah wrote, Isaiah wrote during the time of exile, right? When, when the people were being brought away into exile. So they would have, in Isaiah's context, the desert, the barren wasteland would have been, for them, exile away from the promised land, from the, from the land of Canaan, from the city of Jerusalem where the temple of God was on Mount Zion. To be taken away from that into exile, that was for them the desert that Isaiah is describing here. The garden then that becomes the passageway is the way that they return, the way that they get back. But notice this. Notice that that it begins not by God simply pulling them out, but by coming to them. Right? That God goes to the desert. He doesn't transport his people out from the desert, but rather, by going into the desert, God transforms the desert itself into a place that can be a garden. That's something to note about this landscape. Something to note because maybe sometimes when we think of it, we think of it in ways that we want God to pull us out of a desert. I mean, we, we read this now with a little different eyes as we look at it because we're not Israelite people who are living in exile from a home country that we would have known as our promised land. But we read these passages of the Old Testament and, and we kind of read them through the lens of the coming Messiah, right? Recognizing that while God is working through the particular history that happens here in Isaiah, he's also giving prophecy for what's coming in the Messiah. That we are people who live in a barren desert wasteland of a broken and sinful world. That we are exiles in that broken and sinful desert of this world. And Jesus then comes into that desert, right? Jesus comes into that desolate, broken world. And it begins to bloom. It begins to blossom. That it begins to show the signs of resurrection, of new life, when Jesus comes into that desolate wasteland of a sinful world. We see something of that in Isaiah's writings here, as with so many of the Old Testament writings, right? That they're pointing forward to Jesus and what Jesus does. So Jesus comes into the desert of our world, the world that we live in. And he transforms it, turns it into a garden. That's worth noting because sometimes maybe we get caught in that and stuck in ways that don't exactly follow along. Right? I mean, you live long enough and you have some struggle. You you go through enough life and you figure out that there are some chapters and seasons of life that really, really feel like a desert. That this is a barren wasteland and I'm stuck here. I can't get out of it. And so maybe we pray that prayer, God, 
Take me out of this wilderness. Get me out of this desert. Transport me out of here. But we're reminded in Isaiah 35 that God doesn't just pull people out of the desert. He comes to them in the desert and begins there. Comes alongside right where we are in this landscape. Something else about the garden landscape that we see in this then is that the garden itself seems to have a purpose. The garden has a purpose. At least the way it shows up here in Isaiah 35. There's a reason for it. It does something, right? I think that's good for us to note because here's what the garden is not. It is not an oasis. Maybe sometimes we think of it that way. I mean, if you picture it in your head, it's a desert, right? It's just endless nothing. Nothing can grow. Nothing can thrive. And and here's this oasis. You know what an oasis is, right? This place in the middle of a desert where all of a sudden in this space, things can grow and thrive and blossom. And if you go to the oasis, well, there you're provided for. But you can't really leave there because you're back in the desert again. So you just go to this place of safety, provision, relief, comfort, luxury. Maybe sometimes you and I, when when we start to think about the desert that we find our lives to be in and the prayer that we bring to God to say, God, get me out of this desert, maybe sometimes what we're picturing in our head is an oasis, God, just give me a place where there's some relief and where I can just flip open a lawn chair and crack open a cold one and kick back and relax for a bit. Give me a place like that. That's not what Isaiah 35 is describing. It's not that. This garden has a purpose, a different purpose. You see, it's, it's a passage. This is a garden that becomes a passage. Isaiah calls it here the the way of holiness for the redeemed. A way of holiness, a passage. I don't know that we get that so much here in the Midwest because this is pretty flat country around here. When I lived in Colorado and would go hiking in the mountains, you find those places in the mountains where, you know what, you just can't get over or around some of these places. Not because the hill was too steep, but because it's a cliff. You cannot climb it. You cannot get around it. There are places like that where you just can't move. You're stuck. You can't go from here to there. There's no way to do it. There's some places in the landscape of Israel that are like that, right? That there are canyons and walls to that and hills and cliffs there where You're stuck in that wilderness. You just can't move. It's impossible to get out of it. That's where Isaiah is speaking into this. That this garden becomes the passage. The passage for those who are living in a place that feels stuck to move, to go, to be able to find a way to move forward again. The garden there has a purpose a purpose to move people forward. You see, they, it's a purpose to follow God. 
follow God to where God is leading. Now, again, let's remember that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we're talking about people who lived under the promise that was given to Abraham, a promise that included land, the promised land, Canaan. So for them to be redeemed, right, returned to the promise that God had given, it meant that God had to return them to the land. So you see that in the language here in Isaiah 35, that the passageway of this garden brings people back to Zion, the promised land, the place where God dwells. That's how it fit for them in their time and in their context. For us in our time and in our context, it fits to following God where God leads. We we live in a time where God does not exist in just the one place of the temple over in Jerusalem, right? But we live in the time where now through the Holy Spirit that God exists among his people everywhere where the church gathers. And we are called then as people who follow Jesus to be his disciples. To follow Jesus. In the desert, that's hard to do. It's hard to follow when it feels like you're in a place where life is just stuck and it can't go anywhere. And this is where Jesus comes in. He says, that place in your world that feels stuck like you can't follow me, I'm going to take that and make that a garden so that you can follow me. Not an oasis, not about luxury, not about having the best life and kicking back and relaxing, not about all the comforts, but about a place in which you can follow Jesus, whatever that looks like. That's what the garden is for. That's what God comes to provide. So we see that, that Jesus does not pull us out of the desert of this broken world, but he provides the way for us to follow him through the desert of a broken world. Whatever that may look like for each of us. That's where the garden shows up. That's what it looks like. That's how the landscape plays out here. Now then, fruit. In a garden, there's fruit. And today we're talking about the spiritual fruit of joy. And I mentioned at the beginning that, yep, joy is the bookend to this particular passage, right? Beginning and end. And Everything into this passage that I've talked about so far, right? All those little features of the desert becomes the garden and it's now the passageway. All of that, remember, is inside the frame of joy. That there's joy in this. What does that spiritual fruit of joy look like as it comes to us? Well, you know what? All right, let me give just a little bit about joy itself. We read about joy in Galatians 5 when Paul mentions it as one of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy there in Galatians 5, it's the Greek word kara, and it means a character or a quality of gladness. Not an emotion, necessarily. Not not a feeling. It's not just feeling happy. But it's a character of gladness, right? A, A quality that we possess because it's been given to us of happiness, gladness. That's what it means there. But in Isaiah 35, that's not Greek, that's Hebrew. So in Hebrew, the word joy, it's the word shimchasin, 
It's got to have one of those things that come from your throat there. Shimchahim. It's a word that doesn't really refer to anything inward at all, but is something outward. It's an outward expression of joy. It's the action of rejoicing, the way it shows up in Hebrew. So mash these couple of things together to see what this spiritual fruit of joy may look like. And I guess if we're to combine that, it would be something of an inner quality we are given, which results in an outward expression, right? An inner quality that we are given, given by God, but it results in an outward expression. We see something of that just in the language of Isaiah 35. Right? Remember those features? God shows up and does something. And because of what God does, there's a result. A result occurs that we see happening there. Joy then becomes that inner quality that we are given by God, that seed planted within us by his Holy Spirit. And it results in an outward expression. What kind of outward expression, right? I mean, let's get down to identifying what this looks like. Well, what we see through these examples in the Bible is it's an expression that acknowledges what God does to provide the way for his people to follow him in faith. Right? That, that's what we see here in Isaiah 35, that God comes into that desert place and he makes it into a garden so that the garden can be a passage, a passage for people to follow him. When we give expression to that, it bears the spiritual fruit of joy. When we acknowledge what God is doing so that people can follow him, that is the spiritual fruit of joy. To express that, to name it and call it out. That's joy as a spiritual fruit. How does that show up? It shows up in the Monday morning texts that I get from some of the ladies in this church who name something that happened in the service the day before. Call that out. Say, thank you for that. You know who you are. It shows up in that note that you write, that card that you give, that phone call that you make, that visit to stop by and check in on someone, just to check in and say, hey, just thinking of you today because your walk with God matters to me. That's the spiritual fruit of joy when we call out those things that we see in the world around us to say, here's where I see God doing something. Here's where I see God at work. And I'm going to name it and express it and say something about it so that you know it. That is the spiritual fruit of joy. Because the spiritual fruit of joy acknowledges what God does to provide the way for his people to follow him in faith. That's what we bear when we bear the spiritual fruit of joy, that we acknowledge that. Now, why is that important? It's important because, let's be honest, for those who live in a desert, sometimes that's hard to see, right? When there are people around you who feel like they are in a desolate place that's stuck and they cannot move, and you come into their lives and say, you know what? 
I'm just going to show you what I see God doing here. Look at what God has done here. Maybe they didn't see it. Because you know what it's like when you live in that dark place that sometimes you just can't see those things on your own. But when someone comes alongside and starts pointing that out and calling attention to it and bringing that fruit of joy in, now all of a sudden, hey, yeah, I do see that now. Yes, I do see where God is moving now. You know, I was so stuck there for a while that I didn't notice, but now that I see it, now that you've called it out, now that you have given some of that spiritual fruit of joy, now I see that the desert becomes a garden, a garden with a purpose, a purpose that I'm not stuck anymore, but I'm walking, I'm following Jesus. I'm on that way of holiness because someone took the time to name it and to express it. And that is the spiritual fruit of joy as it comes to us. Doesn't mean that it's all always happiness sometimes, right? In fact, sometimes we see those examples in the New Testament where it's the opposite. James begins his letter with these words, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Or Peter, 1 Peter 4, he says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised in the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So it's meeting people in a desert. It's meeting people in a place where maybe they have a hard time seeing where that garden is. And when you name it, when you call it out, when you give an expression to it, you see that garden blossom. And now there's a way, a way of holiness, a way to follow Jesus in faith by the fruit that he gives for us to bear, given to us by him and through him alone. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the way that